Welcome to our Advice and Insights podcast, a special series on the case for dividend growth, investing in a post-crisis world. What we're doing here is a series of talks, including some excerpts from the book itself to help capture the investment philosophy known as dividend growth investing that we have made a cornerstone to our practice at the Bonson Group. The book, The Case for Dividend Growth, has just come out and represents my best work and best case and argument for the investment methodology that we believe is at the cornerstone of a truly efficient client experience. We look forward to getting your feedback through this Advice and Insights podcast on the dividend growth orientation. Chapter 3, Not Buying the Stock to Get the Dividend, Buying the Dividend to Get the Stock. I really don't know if there is a chapter in the book that I like more than this one or that I think is more important. And and I suppose I shouldn't say that so early into these recordings because as we get into later chapters, I may end up saying it again and, and I won't have credibility. But the fact of the matter is that I think there is no argument that has been more important to me over the years as a dividend growth investor and that is something that I believe is more easily misunderstood or missed altogether by the investing public and even other investment professionals than this. And and so what I'm sort of doing right now is I want you to not think about the benefit of the dividend, the fact that it's cash that goes in our pocket, uh, what it does to kind of offset risk, what it means in terms of, you know, generating a smoother return. There's all kinds of things for accumulators and for withdrawers mechanically that we're going to be talking about as I cover future chapters of the book. Right now, I just want to talk about a company. Don't call it a stock and don't even call it a dividend stock. Just think about a company. You know, there's companies that pay dividends. There's companies that don't. There's companies that make profits. And there are obviously companies that don't. Usually they're not making profits because they're trying to build to a point of profitability while they, you know, create their brand or create their customer base or whatever the case may be. But the point I want to make is that most investors in today's stock market lose sight of the fact that they are investing in companies. Those companies have management teams, they have employees, they have directors, they have a board, they have a strategy. They certainly have financial realities. They have a balance sheet. They have income statements. They have financial resources. All of those things matter. But to the extent that we're looking at a stock price and hoping the stock price goes higher and so forth, we're doing what might seem to be logical in human nature. I invested in a company at 20 bucks and gosh, I want it to be at 25 bucks. You want to see that price of the stock going higher. But of course, the price of the stock reflects a future claim of earnings. And earnings are themselves the byproduct of the actual operation, strategy, leadership, employees, sales and marketing, capital structure, and so forth. And and I read that directly from chapter three of the book. All of those things have to be in place before profits come. Well, here's the thing. We're never buying the dividend. You never buy a company because it offers a dividend. The fact of the matter is there's only a dividend to pay if the company first has made profits. And there's only profits if the company has first become a great company. 
There is no such thing, and I love this quote from the book, there is no such thing as a dividend that makes a company great. There are merely companies whose dividends point to their greatness. The company must first be an operational competitive entity that is then in a position to pay out a dividend to its shareholders. We do so much work as investment managers around analyzing uh, a, a company's financial situation. We look at its uh, balance sheet. We look at its debt. We look at growth. We look at all kinds of metrics from earnings to sales to book value. But the dividend becomes the one that we believe fits into the world of fundamental analysis. And I, again, read from the book itself. At the end of the day, the dividend can serve as a reinforcement or validation of the analysis one has done, and even more so, the analysis or guidance the company itself provides. The company may have different metrics and valuations around its price, its stock price, relative to its earnings, its sales, its book value, but the dividend gives us a real-life valuation metric to utilize that has skin in the game because it forces a company to release cash in making its declaration. Marking company assets at a certain value helps to determine price to book value, but it invites subjectivity, fallibility, volatility, and more in the fundamental process. And frankly, it does so with little risk to the company, its management, its financial operations. But a dividend, on the other hand, is real life cash that has left the company bank account in real life when paid out to a real-life shareholder. The money's gone, and it's not coming back. It will not be a part of the financial operations of the company anymore. Like the individual declaring to the Internal Revenue Service the income that he will pay taxes on, the payment has teeth. It has skin in the game. So I hope you get the point that I'm making. The dividend itself is the company telling you what they believe about the company's earnings, the company's prospects for growth, the company's fundamental strength. The sustainability of the dividend is telling you what the company believes about the sustainability of its strength and profits and, and so forth. The reliability of its earnings are reinforced by stability of dividends. Now, a lot can go wrong, and I understand that. Companies can play games, they can borrow money, and then try to pay it out in form of a higher dividend to attract investors. All of these things require fundamental research that professional investment managers like myself are obligated to do, to understand the balance sheet, understand its indebtedness, understand its obligations, its liquidity, to look at the, the real quality of the income it's generating. But my point is that if I want to know how management feels about the company after we've done that analysis... I get a chance to see the ultimate vote cast after all the other steps have played out. And that vote I refer to is what the company is paying out to its shareholders. So you benefit in the sense that you're receiving the dividend, but more than that, you benefit in the sense that the dividend is telling you what kind of company it is that you're invested in. I think that it represents shareholder alignment. And it represents a true fiduciary mentality in the C-suite of how company management treats its shareholders. 
you can have failed execution, you can have failed strategy, you can have competitive problems, but when you reach a point of maturity as a company and management knowing the competitive atmosphere and knowing the challenges they face, the opportunities they seek, representing a stable dividend they can pay out, grow over time, generate special dividends when circumstances warrant, it really gets to the heart of what you want out of the types of companies that you want to buy. And so if one were to come to me and say, David, we got your book. And for, you know, I don't happen to think that the, what, 170, 180 pages of the whole book is very daunting. But if, if someone in, in this day and age of Twitter can't handle reading more than one chapter, I would say this is the chapter to read. Because nothing means more than access to quality companies that dividend growth investing represents. And that's the point I want to make here. Dividends as a reflection of quality companies. Chapter 4, The Accumulation of Wealth. The Eighth Wonder of the World on Steroids. And this is the chapter in which I think most investors might think about accumulation. They understand already, hey, we're buying something that we want to go up in value. And then from that new higher value, it goes up further. And so you're getting that sort of compounding of your return. And I think most people are familiar with the basic mathematics about compounding. But at the end of the day, all it simply means is that if one has $100 and it goes up 10%, they have 110 But then if that goes up 10%, they don't have 120 because that next 10% was done at, on the $110 instead of just on the 100 So you're getting this sort of extra return as you compound year by year. And we spend a lot of time for a good reason as investment advisors trying to educate clients on, on this kind of miracle the underlying dynamic of compounding because the fact of the matter is that it generates numbers that if people don't really understand and don't see, you know, the, uh, the kind of pro forma demonstrations, they wouldn't believe it. At the end of the day is basic mathematics, but to kind of let it play out and do and let compounding do what it does to one's accumulation of capital, it becomes really quite significant. And we're going to talk in a future chapter about the defensive benefit of dividend growth, uh, particularly for those withdrawing capital. But for right now, I want to talk about the greedy side, the opportunistic side of dividend growth investing. And that is for the accumulation of wealth, uh, the offensive side of the ball, investors are able to earn capital through the compounding of their growing stock prices, but also the dividend being paid out, reinvested in more shares that are themselves paying out more dividends. So you get not only the compounding of your basic investment, I'm making up a number, but you may have a stock that you know goes up 7%. So if it was 100 bucks, now it's 107. And yet, if it pays you out a dividend, you end up with an extra layer of compounding because you're getting a compounded return on not only your underlying stock, but that additional share. And then those additional shares themselves are compounding. All the while, they are paying out themselves more dividends into the future. 
So we kind of think of it as a next layer of compounding. And when you apply it across a diversified portfolio, you see the results. I say in the book, compounding for a dividend growth investor means compounding the return of the underlying assets and the return of the additional shares accumulated via dividends over long periods of time. And I think that it is a very understandable, discernible, and yet a very opportunistic way to consider investing. Now, of course, a lot of people will say, hey, if I could just buy a stock at 10 bucks and sell it at 100 bucks, spare me your uh, compounding lecture, spare me your sustainable dividend lecture, and spare me the kind of juice I get in the way that the dividend grows over time. But what I go to great lengths to establish in this chapter of the book and provide a lot of charts and so forth is that those high flyers, you may find them in your portfolio every now and then, but they generally come with very significant droppers as well. And yet, when you have a company that continues to grow that dividend, you're accumulating in a way that at certain moments in time may feel less exciting, but are in fact much more stable. And the end result mathematically ends up becoming significantly better for investors. So I guess if one says, okay, that's great. I like the idea that I can compound, I get accumulation of more shares. However, I don't have a lot of time. I want to do it real quickly. Well, that's true. Accumulation by definition requires time. Compounding by definition requires time. And so the get rich quick people would not necessarily be attracted to this. But for those who are what we call investors and that are looking for a responsible and reasonable accumulation of capital, I think that because we don't believe free and quick money is doable and repeatable and systematically wise for most investors, this represents the, the best uh, option you're going to have apart from these kind of pie-in-the-sky notions of easy money. Now, let's talk about the sort of unpleasant reality that actually gets to the greatest part of this whole point, and that is the reality of downside market volatility. I say in the book, there ought to be an enhanced peace of mind during periods of market volatility, and I'm referring to the accumulator, knowing that what is taking place is actually growing the investor's future income. How does a declining market help an accumulator grow their future income? Because it provides them a larger base of shares, more stock that will be themselves paying needed dividends in the future. And so when you think about the fact that you're going to get more shares of stock when, it, when things are at lower prices through market volatility, the accumulator and the compounding that they are experiencing with the recurring payment of dividends is benefiting from market volatility. And uh, I quote here in the book, one of my investment mentors, Lowell Miller, as we know, mature companies pay dividends from their earnings. The feature is a significant number of companies that raise their dividend every year. To most, this seems like a nice amenity. But because most people don't have a long horizon worldview, they understand, they under, excuse me, underestimate the potency of this factor. 
It is, in fact, the electricity that will make your compounding machine run. It's the gas for your engine. Dividend growth is the critical piece in the puzzle for creating a portfolio that will serve you for years. So I want to emphasize the dividend growth stocks will be subject to market volatility, that we do not get to insulate ourselves from stock prices to go up and down. But what I want to emphasize is that if indeed that dividend itself is sustainable, that the dividend growth investor benefits from that volatility because through time, the price of the underlying asset, if it is continuing to grow its free cash flow, will recover. And yet along the way, it will reinvested more shares for you through dividend payments at lower prices. A double whammy winner. I would argue, uh, reading from the book, to close uh, for an accumulator, the avoidance of a high flyer is a blessing, not a curse, because I think that the pursuit of high flyers leads to more losers than winners through time. And yet, I would argue that for the dividend growth accumulator, they actually get a sensible, repeatable, mathematically established way of generating those same total return objectives and doing it in a way that is taking advantage of market distress. I'm aware of no other investment strategy that has the embedded exploitation of market distress that this does without having to add new cash. The concept is to allow time, compounding, and the reality of dividend reinvestment to produce a smoother and successful result for your future cash flow needs. Thank you for listening to this Advice and Insights special podcast series covering the case for dividend growth. We hope you have found it enlightening and at least given you a taste of what it is we believe at the cornerstone of our investment process. Of course, we really do encourage you to buy a copy of the case for dividend growth or reach out to us and maybe we'll get you a copy. We want you to read the whole book, not just merely rely on the podcast But we do hope that this has given you a taste of the arguments that we make for dividend growth investing and given you a better foundation to understanding the investment methodology itself. Thank you for listening to Advice and Insights Podcast. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.